0: Well, we began our study in the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, this Gospel Foundations study. We began it in August of 2015. So I made it in under three years. Uh, Now, I mean, I said it would be a year and a half but it was less than the six years that Mike predicted. So uh, be sure whenever he's back to, to mention, hey, it's nice that Daniel was able to finish that in under six years, huh? Uh, but hope it's been encouraging to you. Uh, this is uh, this is an exciting study for me. It's uh, been encouraging to my soul, and I hope that's true for you as well as we see these, these first five books of the Bible pointing us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to kind of Kind of give an overview today of the Pentateuch and then kind of talk about what we see as this book of Deuteronomy comes to an end. So if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read this last chapter together, Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, "'This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring.' I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we do ask your, your special blessing on us today as we come to your word as we seek to live by faith in your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Well, uh, what I want us to do this morning is, as we come to the end of our study of these first five books of the Bible, what I want us to do is, first of all, talk about how kind of this, this whole study began, and then I want us to talk about what the Pentateuch is about, and then I want us to talk about some things we can think about as the Pentateuch comes to an end and hopefully uh you know i'm a little little nervous about this message this morning um it's covering a lot of material, and it could potentially be a little bit dry. You know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that. I don't want this just to be some sort of academic lesson, but we are kind of, I'm trying to talk about all the things we've talked about in previous months, and I'm kind of worried that some of you will say, well, hey, if you can do this in 45 minutes, why do we take three years? Uh, but that's that's where we are this morning. Uh, I was talking to my friend, our friend, Doug Van Meter from South Africa, and he was talking about how he and his church are beginning biblical counseling with some of the leaders there, and they were in Exodus 32 recently. And remember in that chapter, Aaron presents these golden calves, and he says, look, this is this is your God. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And so he takes some truths about God, and he even calls worship of this false god worship of Yahweh. He says, okay, here's some things about Yahweh, this deliverer of God, and then he takes these idols and he kind of meshes that worship together. And as we've been going through the Pentateuch, we've said, look, we need to know some truths about God. We can't just say, well, I'm going to worship God and start saying I love God and kind of have this nebulous, vague conception of who God is. We need to know the truth about who God is, and that's what we see in the Pentateuch, and that's what we're talking about this morning. And so, hopefully, Hopefully, we can we can get through this together, even though there's a lot of material here. I, I have confidence. I mean, this is the church that was excited about starting the book of Leviticus, or at least some of you were. So, you know, I have very high hopes for us uh, this morning. The main idea that I want us to walk away from this morning and the main idea that I want us to walk away from this study with is this. You and I need to live by faith in Christ. That's God's call on us. That's the message that was to the original audience, to live by faith in God's promised seed. That's the message to you and I. The people of Israel are called to live by faith and to manifest that faith and obedience. And at the beginning, they they sometimes, they'll, they'll make these commitments. Yeah, here's the path that God tells us to walk, live by faith, and we're going to do that. But the problem they have is similar to the problem that you and I have, and that's that the gods that other people worship are very enticing. So we can make this commitment, I'm, gonna, I'm going to live by faith, and then a health problem occurs and it's harder to live by faith. Or we see the lure of materialism or the lure of power or the lure of sexuality or whatever God it is that's, that's out there, our, our flesh is pulled away from living by faith in God and other paths seem to offer such promise. And yet, as we've gone through this study in the Pentateuch, we have recognized that the end of other paths end in destruction. And God's call on me, God's call on you, is to live by faith in Christ. That's what we've seen. So, a little bit of a different message this morning, but here's the first thing that I want us to think about. That's this. Well, I want to talk about how the Pentateuch begins. When I say how the Pentateuch begins, I don't mean what Genesis 1 -1 says, but what our study of the Pentateuch began with. As we began our, our study in the Pentateuch, we said that there is a divine author and a human author. So the divine author is God. God is the ultimate author of the Pentateuch, but Moses is the human author, and God tells Moses what to write, and Moses compiles some things, and he writes the Pentateuch. And he gives it to an audience. And the audience isn't the people who come out of the land of Egypt. It's the next generation, the original audience. The original audience for the material in these first five books of the Bible that Moses writes and compiles are the people who are encamped on the plains of Moab. So there's the Jordan River. They're on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them, and that's where they receive these, these words of Moses, God's, God's word to them. And God tells them about who they are and what his purpose for them is and how to walk in obedience to him. There's a purpose behind this message. And the purpose is that they would not just understand the old covenant, but the purpose of these words that Moses is writing The purpose is so they would be prepared for this this new covenant. You see, Moses Moses doesn't write down every single detail about their journey. He doesn't write down every single law that he spoke or that that God had mentioned. He he chooses some things very carefully to to tell them about. Uh, Whitney and I, I mentioned before, Whitney and I have these anniversary journals that we keep. And we've every year of our marriage we've sat down on our anniversary or a couple days before our anniversary and, and kind of written out what happened in the previous year. And uh, sometimes you know, I always have these dreams about okay, I'm gonna do it like a week before I'm gonna write this amazing thing and usually it's like the night before I'm like, okay, I gotta finish this up before we have a date tomorrow. And sometimes it's like an hour before we're leaving for the date and I'm trying to finish this thing up. And what I do is I don't write down everything that happened over the previous year, I say, you know what, here are some things that I want us, as years go on, to remember. These are the, the, the important things that happened to us as a family this year. Moses is writing down not everything, but some things. And the things that he writes down reveal the purpose. The purpose that Moses has as he writes these things is to point them to a future covenant. A future covenant that's going to be brought about by a future king. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 5? In John chapter 5, I think it's verse 46, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders and he says, look, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me you would, if you believe Moses, Jesus says, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. And he doesn't mean that Moses kind of wrote this big book and there's like a sentence here and a sentence here about me. What Jesus is saying is, look, I am, I'm the subject of the Pentateuch. I'm the, the subject of the law. Moses wrote ultimately about me. I'm the, the subject of these first five books of Scripture. In the Pentateuch, Moses is, is preparing the people for a new covenant. He's calling them to look to anticipation to this new covenant. And he's calling them not to live under the law, but ultimately Moses is calling them to live by faith. To live by faith in this promised Messiah, this promised seed. That's what we talked about as we began our study in the Pentateuch. All right. With me so far? We're doing okay. Let's talk about what is the Pentateuch about. Okay? What is the Pentateuch about? You said, Well, Jesus, okay, well that's that's true. But how does Moses point people to Jesus? I, I want to go through each of the five books and remind us what we talked about and see how these these books point us to Jesus. The first book of the Pentateuch is what? Please? Gen- yeah, <laughs> we're in big trouble. Yeah, you, you knew this before we began the study. It's Genesis, okay? What is the p- Genesis about? In Genesis we see this. We see that the creator God plans to redeem the nations and establish his kingdom through the promised seed. You begin the book of Genesis, and, and remember the, the people that Moses is writing to originally, they're the people who are encamped on the plains of Moab, and what Moses is saying is, look, you need to understand who you are. And you understand, understand what God's purpose for you was originally and what God's purpose for you continues to be. A few weeks ago, uh, I, I discovered that the lawnmower wasn't working properly. And I, I discovered this because Whitney told me. Um, I'm always embarrassed. I'm very self conscious of the fact that uh, Whitney is the one who mows the lawn in our family. I'm, I'm, I feel like half of you are judging me. And. Um, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I think it's terrible what I do. And um, then the other half, I feel like you are judging me for being so chauvinistic, and I'm on your side too. It's terrible that I feel like I should be the one mowing the lawn. Anyway, she loves it. Trust me. Ask her. Um, Anyway, I discovered that the lawnmower wasn't working because Whitney said, hey, Daniel, the lawnmower isn't working. And I I come out, and we recognize that the safety switch isn't, isn't Working properly, you, you engage the blades, and and the lawnmower shuts down. And so I, I pull up the seat. And I'm looking at it, and I, I recognize with my vast uh, ability to recognize things that there are, are wires that just seem to be loose. And so I said, well, I don't think this should be like this. I don't know where the wires are supposed to go. I can't tell where they are coming from. But let's just kind of I think this should be connected here, and this should be connected here. And we started up the lawnmower, and it ran. But uh, now the safety switch was just completely disengaged, and you, know, you could jump up and down, you could jump off the lawnmower, and it would just keep going. But it would mow, okay, which I felt like was a step in the right direction. Okay? Now, I, I looked online later, and I saw a wiring diagram for this lawnmower, and I, I recognized that uh, you could take this wiring diagram, and you could say, okay, here's how it's supposed to be, and then you can look at how it is, and you could see the difference and I plan on doing that very soon and fixing it all, but I haven't yet, right? But I, I had not known how it was supposed to be. I wasn't sure how the... And so I, I, I put it together some way. Now, what God is saying is... is Genesis begins, he says, look, okay, you're going to look around you, and you're going to recognize that the wiring is off, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and you're going to look to answers in other places and say, well, maybe, maybe things should operate this way, or maybe things should look this way. And God is saying, no, here's how things are supposed to be. As Genesis begins, it begins in chapters 1 through 11, and it talks about the nations. So there's there's God's creation, and then there's the fall. There's God promises in Genesis 3, I'm going to deal with this curse eventually, but this is where we are. And then as you go from chapters 4 through 11, you see the nations developing, and you see that there is a huge problem as the nations are in rebellion against God. And then in chapter 12, in fact, you can turn to Genesis 12 if you'd like, we see God dealing with a family. So it goes from dealing with all the nations to God dealing with a family. And that family begins with a person, Abram or Abraham, And in Genesis 12, we see the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, this promise God makes to this man Abraham. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so chapters 12 through 50 deal with this promise that God has made to Abraham. Look, I'm going to redeem the nations. And I'm going to do it beginning with you. I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to turn you into a nation, a kingdom. And all the nations are going to be redeemed through this one nation. And in Genesis 15, we see that you enter into this kingdom not through works, but through faith. It says Abraham believed God and God to him as righteousness. You come to the end of the book of Genesis and and the descendants of Abraham have increased, and now there's this, uh, this man Israel, and he has these, these sons. And we learn that through this one son, Judah, there's going to be a king, and this king is going to be the one who brings this promise that God made to Abraham into fruition. So as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, what do we see? There's this creator God, and he has a plan, a redemption plan And this plan of redemption begins with Abraham and all the nations are going to be a a part of this plan of redemption through this promised seed. That's Genesis. Now we come into the book of Exodus. And what do we see in the book of Exodus? In the book of Exodus, we learn about a saving God. And this saving God redeems his people to establish them as, as a kingdom of priests in the book of Exodus, the the, the the people of God have become enslaved. This, this kingdom that God is going to bring his promised seed through, this, this kingdom has become enslaved. And so, in the book of Exodus, we see how this saving God takes his people out of a nation and prepares them to be this nation of priests. In the book of Exodus, chapter 19, God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God calls his people out of bondage of slavery into a relationship with him so that they can become this nation that will be priests, that will proclaim his plan of redemption to all the nations. Okay, now here's, I'm kind of nervous about this part. We'll see how this goes. You, you begin in the book of Exodus with this, this preparation, and then we see God make this covenant with his people. And then the last part of the book of Exodus deals with, with the law, with, with worship. Now, this is the part of the Bible where some of us begin every year with this, we're, we're going to read through the Bible plan, you know, and so we start reading through the Bible, and, you know, January goes pretty well, because Genesis is not that hard, and then we get into the book of Exodus, and yeah, you know, Pharaoh, and that's kind of interesting, and then we get to the law, you know, and there's a roadblock, and this section that deals with the laws is, is, is a tough section. Some Christians come to the, this part of Scripture and say, oh, you know what, I'm I'm not even going to try this. Uh, I, I'm just you know, I'm going to go back to starting Matthew, okay? And that's, that's a little bit easier. And some Christians come to this and say, well, uh, this is God's word, and so I need to figure out how to apply this. And I, I don't know how to sacrifice a goat. I don't have any goats, but I need to you know, figure out how to, I, I don't know. And then critics of Christianity come to this section of Scripture and say, look, you say you believe the Bible. Why don't you do all these things still? You must really not believe the Bible. What do we do with this section? Well, we spent some time here. And let me just remind you, don't try to write all this down. I'm just trying to remind you of the things we talked about. Let me remind you of some of the statements. In fact, if you want to write them down, we talked about this like at the end of 2016 as we talked about the the believer in the new covenant. So you can look at that and and remind, and you wrote them down already. I'm sure you all took really great notes. So uh, you don't need to write it down again. Real quickly, here are the things we talked about when we came to the section of the law. Number one, we said that the, the law is God's word, okay? The law is God's word. That was it, We come to this part of Scripture and we don't say, well, this isn't really God's word. No, the law is God's word. It's, it's, it's delightful. We come to it for life. The second thing we saw, though, is that the law did not bring about salvation. Remember Paul in the book of Galatians says, look, uh, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be through the law. But the Scripture, Paul says, imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And then later he says the, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We're going to talk about Galatians beginning in August, right? In other words, he's saying there was a promise made to Abraham, and you, you become a part of Abraham's promise by faith, not by the law. The law, the law was this, this, this thing that did not bring about salvation. But number three the law was given to a specific people at a specific time. Unless you're a Jew living between 1400 B.C. and 35 A.D., the law was not given to you. It was given to this people at this time so they could understand how God wanted them to live. The fourth thing that we saw is that the law proclaims the gospel and is fulfilled by Christ. In other words, like Paul says, the law was a guardian. It was, it was designed to help the people understand who Christ was. We'll talk more about this as we get in the book of Leviticus. The fifth thing that we saw is that the law was misunderstood. It was perverted to the people to whom it was given. They forgot about the Abrahamic covenant in some ways and how it was received through faith. They, they forgot about the book of Deuteronomy and the importance of, of loving God and loving neighbor. As yourself. The sixth thing about the law that we talked about, the law, or excuse me, the Christian in the law, the Christian is not under the old covenant and therefore is not bound by the Mosaic law. I'm not bound by the Mosaic law because I'm not a Jew living in 1445 B.C. Seventh, we see that the Christian instead is under the law of Christ, the law of love. And eighth, we saw that the Christian comes to the law. We don't just skip the law. We come to the law, and as I come to the law, what do I do? I learn about God, and I learn about the gospel because it points to Jesus. And the final thing that we saw as we looked at Exodus and the law, we saw that the new covenant that you and I are a part of, the new covenant that we're going to celebrate together as a church in a little bit as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the new covenant is different from, it's better than the old covenant. And it's this new covenant that Moses, as he compiles the Pentateuch is calling people to look forward to you. That's, that's the book of Exodus. Now we come to the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, we see that the Holy God establishes a way to be able to dwell in the midst of his people. I don't know if, you're, if you remember this or not, but when we came to the end of the book of Exodus, as we were studying through the book of Exodus, we came to the, to the end, we came to different parts of the book of Exodus, and we realized that there was a big problem. The big problem is that these people were terrible. They were terrible. They they would get the law, and then they would break it. They would be told to do something, and they would break it. And as you come to the end of the book of, Levit, of Exodus, you recognize that there's a very significant problem. Uh, The people say, look, God, we want you to go with us. And God says, yeah, I'd love to go with you. But the only problem is if I hang out with you guys very much, I'm going to destroy you because you're terrible. And so as we come to the book of Leviticus, there's a question. How can a holy God dwell with his people? A few weeks ago, I was speaking at Bethany Baptist Church, and maybe you've had this, this feeling before, but you know, when I, was, when I was on staff at Bethany Baptist Church, there was a dress code, and I was the youth pastor, but there was still kind of this expectation that you'd wear a suit and tie, and so I would uh, every Sunday come in a suit and tie, and I, I knew that wasn't the expectation now, but as I was getting ready for church a few weeks ago, and I knew I was going to be speaking there, I was worried. I was like, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to. I'd already gotten dressed, and I was like, I don't know if this is appropriate. I don't know if I'll be, you know, I'll get there and people, are like, whoa, like, you know, we going to the beach or something. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the car and I'm, I'm texting. Hey, um, you know, texting the staff members there. Hey, what are you wearing? Uh, um, uh, asking for a friend, and uh, I stuck a tie in my pocket. And as I walked in and and got there and asked a guy, like, hey, um, is it okay if I'm not wearing a tie? Do I need a coat? And he said, uh, look around, you know, we're very casual now, but not inappropriately so. The point is this, you know, if I can feel that sense of unease, and and I'm sure you've been there as well, that sense of unease as I go to a place, like, am am I appropriately dressed? How much more should I feel that sense of unease as I think about my lack of holiness as I dwell in the presence of a holy God? That's the problem in the book of Leviticus. How can I, a sinner, presume just to kind of be in relationship with God, to to dwell with him? And the book of Leviticus, it kind of goes through this structure. It talks about sacrifices, and it talks about priests, and then it talks about holiness, and then there's this thing in the middle of the Day of Atonement, and then it goes through in backwards order. So, uh, then holiness, and then the priests, and then the sacrificial system. So, uh, sacrifice, priest, holiness, holiness, priest, sacrifice. Day of atonement right in the middle. And as we came to the book of Leviticus, we saw, look, there's a need. There's a need for a perfect sacrifice, a perfect priest, and perfect holiness, which brings us to Jesus, right? The need for Jesus, who's our perfect priest, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect holiness. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has no need, like the Old Testament high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Moses points us to a new covenant. He points us to a coming priest. He points us to a coming perfect sacrifice. Which brings us to the book of Numbers. And what do we see in the book of Numbers? In the book of Numbers, we see that the gracious God exhorts his wandering people to enter into his rest through faith. The book of Numbers deals with the people who have been out of bondage and of slavery and now are getting ready to enter the promised land. And there's this, the outline of the book of Numbers kind of goes through this. This, this this traveling from Sinai to the, the plains of Moab and the ends with the people in the plains of Moab. And the central part of the book of Numbers occurs in Numbers 14 as the people have been told by God to go into the land. This is the land that God promised to give to them through his his covenant with Abraham. And the people are are right there on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And the, the report comes back from the spies and it's a negative report and so the people refuse to believe God. And that unbelief is shown through disobedience. God says, go into the land, I'm gonna give it to you and the people say, yeah, I, I, I just don't see it. I'm not, I'm not buying it. And so that generation is punished the people say that we and our our children will will become prey in this land and god says yeah i'm not going to give the land to you but your children that you said would be devoured by this land those are the ones who are going to receive the land now how does that point to jesus as we go to the new testament we see that jesus is the one who calls us out of bondage and calls us to enter into his rest. And like the people in the book of Numbers, we are people who have not yet arrived. And so throughout the book of of Hebrews, for example, we see God using the the people in the book of Numbers as as an illustration for us. He says in Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then verse 15 of chapter 3, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. You come into chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 1, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter into God's rest as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, God calls us to enter into his rest. How do we enter into the rest of God through faith in Jesus? That brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the glorious God prepares his people to experience blessing as they live in by faith in the land. There's that great section of Deuteronomy. We see this theme repeated throughout, where in Deuteronomy 6, there's the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The people of God are called to enter into the land and live by faith in God as as they love him. Let me show you a, a diagram that we talked about as we went through the book of Deuteronomy. Remember we saw, I must know God to love him, okay? So God says, you need to know who I am. You, you can't have these false understandings of who I am. You need to write, have right doctrine and theology. You need to know who I am. And then he says, in order to I, I must know God to love him, and then I must love him in order to obey him. And then I must obey God in order to experience his blessing. Okay, So I must know God to love him. I must love God in order to obey him. And I must obey him to experience his blessing. Or another way to view it is this. I know God and then I can love God. And then as I love God, I can walk in obedience to him. And as I walk in obedience to him, I can experience his blessing. I can't just simply say, I'm going to love God, I first of all have to know him. I can't simply say, well, I'm just going to obey God. First, I have to love him. And I can't experience his blessing unless I've walked in obedience to him. So I know the right doctrine of who God is. Then I I love that God that I've come to know because he's so magnificent and glorious. Then I obey him because I love him. And then I experience his blessing. The other pattern that we see in the book of Deuteronomy is this. I don't know God. Instead, I forget him. I forget who he is. Instead of loving him, I love myself. And when I love myself and the idols of this world, I don't obey him, I walk in disobedience. And as I walk in disobedience, I don't experience blessing, instead I experience curse. Now, do you remember the problem, though, that we encountered as we went through the book of Deuteronomy? If it's only those who love know God, love him, and walk in obedience who will experience his blessing, and if all those who forget who he is and love themselves and idols and walk in disobedience ex- experience his curse, what's what's the problem? The problem is all of us are in line for the curse, and, and none of us are in line for the blessing. So here's what we saw, this, this statement. We saw we need someone who can take the curse and provide the blessing for us. What is our need? We came to the book of Deuteronomy, and we said, boy, and, and Moses is pointing us to this, this reality. I need someone who can take the curse, who can take the, the penalty that I deserve, And and what's more, I need someone who can live in perfect obedience and and give that blessing to me. And as we went through the book of Deuteronomy, we saw that there was going to be a, a coming king. We saw that there was going to be a perfect priest. We saw that there was going to be a coming prophet. We saw that in, especially Deuteronomy 17 and 18. We need someone who can take the curse and provide the blessing. Which brings us to how the Pentateuch ends. How does the Pentateuch end? Let's look at Deuteronomy 34 here. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, notice this. The Pentateuch ends, as the Pentateuch ends, the, the Abrahamic covenant is still standing, Genesis begins with the nations in disobedience, walking in rebellion. Then Genesis 12 comes, and there's this special promise that God makes to Abraham. It's going to be a promise that's received by faith, but then there is sin. These patriarchs are terrible people, and yet the Abrahamic covenant still stands. The people don't want to be rescued out of Egypt, and yet the covenant still stands. As soon as God makes a covenant, with the people and gives them the Ten Commandments that they break those. They they're worshiping these false gods. When a God brings them to the cusp of the promised land and says, Okay, here 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 we are, now walk in. They go, Ah, no thanks. And so they, they disobey him here. Over and over again there is disobedience. And now you come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses has just said, Look, Here's a song. I'm teaching you a song because you're going to mess up so royally, you need to be reminded of God's graciousness. And yet, look look what happens here in Deuteronomy 34. God shows Abraham uh, God shows Moses this this land in this special way and he says, "This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring." In other words, this This is still my plan. This is still going to come about. How can how can that be true? It can't be because the people of Israel are, are so awesome. It's because God is relying upon the righteousness of this coming Redeemer. What is that? It's the Pentateuch pointing to Jesus. How else does the Pentateuch end? The Pentateuch ends with Moses outside the Promised Land. Now, now, why is that significant? It's not accidental. Moses and, and maybe someone else compiling just kind of this very end. There's there's a very intentional structure to what Moses is writing here. And as, we, as I've kind of gone throughout the whole Pentateuch, I've said, look, this is this is pointing to Jesus. This is pointing to a new covenant. And and what I what I think is happening here is that Moses is contrasting himself and Abraham through a lot of A lot of the scripture, and Moses, who lives under the law, remains outside the promised land. In other words, the law can't get you in. And yet Abraham, who lives before the law, is said to be obedient to the law. and, And where does he end up? He's he dies in the promised land. He experiences the blessing of the land that God has promised. And how does he experience? Not through the law, but through faith. The message come become the end of this section of Scripture is that the law doesn't get you in. It guides you to the new covenant. You and I need to be careful not to fall into the, the snare of legalism. And we'll talk about that more as we go on to the Galatians here in August. Third, third thing about the Pentateuch's ending, the Pentateuch ends with the promised seed, yet to arrive. This this is so cool. Look at these last few verses here in the book of Deuteronomy. They're positive words about Moses, yes, but, but there's something else. It says, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Now, why is that significant? Is it just to say, well, Moses is so awesome? No, because in Deuteronomy 18, what has Moses said? It says God the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him whom you shall listen. And he'll talk about this, the, the greatness of this prophet. I will raise up for them, God says, a prophet like you. Now, now what, what does this mean as it comes to an end? As, as Deuteronomy comes to an end, it says there hasn't been this prophet. There's none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord has sent him, that the Lord sent him to do in all the land of Egypt. In other words, there's still this coming prophet. There's still this coming priest, there's still this coming king, and he hasn't arrived yet. This is why Jesus says that the things that were written, that Moses wrote, were about himself. The fourth thing I want us to think about is that the Pentateuch ends with a continued call to live by faith. The Pentateuch ends with a call to continue to live by faith. The challenge that the people of Israel were going to have is they were going to go in this land and they were going to forget the promises that God had given them. They weren't going to continue to believe and trust in this coming Messiah. The challenge that you and I face is the same. We have received more revelation. We've seen the beauty of Jesus Christ that Moses pointed us to, and we also are tempted to fail to continue to live by faith. There's one more passage that I want us to look at, and as we look at it, I, I want to invite the, the men to come forward to begin to prepare to pass out the elements of communion as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and our great sacrifice, our great Lamb as we come to the end of the study of the Pentateuch. But I, I want to read to you from Leviticus 20, or, sorry, from Luke 24. And remember what happens in Luke 24, and, and this, is, this is what I want our hearts to meditate on as we come to the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember in Luke 24, there are two disciples that are on their their way to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. This is after the resurrection. The the men are sad because Jesus has, has died, and Jesus, it says, begins to talk to them. He says, Oh, they don't know it's Jesus yet. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, and this is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture for us to understand the purpose of the Old Testament. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He continues to walk with the disciples. They arrive at their destination, the village, and he, uh, he reveals himself to them. It says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And listen to what it says. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? As we come to the conclusion of our study of these first five books of the Bible, I hope that you can say with these disciples, did not our hearts burn within us? In other words, not that our hearts feel kind of happy that there's some fun stories about Jesus, but did not our hearts burn within us as God revealed to us who his Son was his son promised from the beginning. And as our hearts burn within us, as we consider who Jesus is, are we encouraged in our walk with him and in strengthened in our desire to walk in faith and love and obedience to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together now, remembering that Jesus Christ represents the promised sacrifice the means by which God has redeemed us and reconciled us to Himself. Encourage you to, to pray that as we per- take of the Lord's Supper and prepare our hearts, encourage you to pray that God would reveal to you a sin perhaps that's keeping you from walking in obedience to him, that God would grant you repentance, you would turn from that and turn to faith in his, his son Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll begin to pass out the elements. Father, we pray that you would reveal sin to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us the strength to walk in obedience to him. We pray this in his name, amen.